I wanted to start a series on the lives of Elijah and Elisha and to learn from these two Old Testament prophets how we can experience God's power in our lives. And that's what we want and that's what we need and that's what God wants us to have. Now, the way I want to begin this tonight, I'm going to put or we're going to put two different columns of words on the screens and I want us just to look at these and I want you as we're thinking about these columns to ask yourself this question, which column describes my life the most accurately, okay? The one on the left or the one on the right? The one on the left says faith, power, peace, victory, and fruitfulness. Now, hopefully all of us can say, well, that's my column. But the other column sometimes sneaks up on us and it becomes our column. Worry, struggle, turmoil, defeat, and fruitlessness. So, one of those columns describes you better than the other. Now, if you would say tonight that column two describes you the best, good news. This series is going to help move you closer to column one. If you say, John, I think I've already got column one mastered. I don't need the series. I'm already living with faith and power and peace and victory and all those different things in my life. I would say, hallelujah, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. But let me ask you this question. Do you think that you have all the faith that there is to have? I mean, do you think you're experiencing all of the power and all of the peace? You may be here tonight and you say, John, I've got peace like a river. Man, that's wonderful to have that. But we can have even more peace than what we have or victory and fruitfulness. And so tonight we're thinking, how can we experience those things in our lives? So that said, if you'll open your Bible tonight to the book of 1 Kings chapter number 17. And for the first few Wednesday nights of our study, we're going to be focusing on Elijah. And then we're going to shift a gear and we're going to start focusing on Elisha. So Elijah first and then Elisha. Now, the first thing I'd like for us to do tonight is just to look at an overview of Elijah's, uh, an overview of his life. And what was it that made him so amazing and so, uh, such, a, such a great disciple of God and a great prophet of God? In fact, sometimes in sports you hear a, an athlete say, um, I believe these four quarterbacks should be on the Mount Rushmore of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. And they'll give you their quarterbacks. Or sometime in the NBA, I think these four players, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Bill Russell, these should be the Mount Rushmore of the NBA. Well, if we were making a Mount Rushmore of Bible characters, Elijah would be on that list. Now, Jesus is beyond Mount Rushmore. He has his own mountain. But I mean, we're just talking about normal, regular people. I think you would have Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament. And at least on my Mount Rushmore, I would probably have Peter and Paul from the New Testament. But Elijah, I think, would be on everybody's list. Now, as we think about his life and try to understand his life better, the first thing I would say is this. He lived during a wicked, evil, sinful time. And we can relate to that because the world we live in uh, has those qualities. Now, in 1 Kings chapter number 17 and beginning in verse number 1, here's how we're introduced to this prophet. He just comes out of nowhere. He just suddenly appears. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. This is modern-day Jordan. So Elijah's family was from what we know today as the country of Jordan. They were east of the Jordan River. 
And he approaches Ahab, who was the wicked king of Israel. Now, if you'll go back in chapter 16 and look in verse 30, we're introduced to Ahab. And it says this, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all those who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And so Ahab married a girl, Jezebel. And Jezebel had grown up worshipping Baal. Now, when you read the Old Testament, we read about Baal. Baal worship. What is Baal? What was Baal? Well, it was, a, it was a pagan god, as it were. It was like a Canaanite deity. And it was believed in this time that Baal was the god of fertility, the god of rain, the god of fruitfulness. So if you prayed to Baal and worshipped Baal, your crops would come in plentiful and the rain would be there. and You'd have lots of money and you'd have lots of kids. And, but that all came through Baal. Now, when the Canaanites got together to worship Baal, what they would do, they would build a big fire, like we might would call it a bonfire, and they would begin to chant and pray and call out to Baal. But as part of their worship, to show Baal, now Baal is a false god. There is no such person. Baal is a made-up god. It's mythology. But they believed he was real. And so they would take their infant babies and throw their babies in the bonfire and sacrifice their babies to Baal, to say to Baal, this is how much we believe in you. This is how important you, you are more important to us than our own children. And so we worship you and pledge our ultimate allegiance to you. It was, it was evil. It was, it's unthinkable that this was happening. But now Ahab has married Jezebel, and he now has become a part of Baal worship. Verse 32, then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal. So now um, which he had built in Samaria. So now he's encouraging all the people in the kingdom to begin to worship Baal. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so Israel had had some wicked kings, and yet he just surpassed all of them by this practice of Baal worship. Now, let me test your Bible knowledge. I know you know the answer to this question. But let me just test you. Who was the first king of Israel? On the count of three, I want you to say who you think it was, okay? And if you don't know, just move your lips, okay, so nobody will know you got it wrong. One, two, three. Saul. Who was the second king? David. And who was the third king? Solomon, David's son. So Saul, David, and Solomon. These are the first three kings of the nation of Israel. At this time in Israel's history, interestingly, each of those kings reigned for 40 years. At this time in Israel's history, Israel was a, was a united kingdom, a united kingdom. But after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And at this point in the, in the story of Israel, the, the kingdom split. And so now instead of just having one nation of Israel with one king over the whole nation, you have a divided kingdom. You have the northern part of Israel and the southern part. And the northern part, just because since that was the, the larger part, it just kept the name Israel. And the southern part took the name Judah, which is kind of like the region or the county. Not really a county, but kind of like the region there in, in Israel. It was in, where Jerusalem is. 
So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now it's interesting. I counted this today. And according to the material I was reading today, in the history of Israel in the north, there were 20 kings. In the history of Judah in the south, there were 20 kings. Now, in, they didn't all reign at the same time. Their reigns were different, you know, but there were still 20 on each. Of the, of the southern kings, the kings in Judah, some were good, some were bad. Of the northern kings in Israel, all were bad. They didn't have a single good king. Never had a good king. Ahab was the eighth of the 20th kings. Uh, and he was wicked, and it says here, his evil and his wickedness surpassed all those who had gone before him. So now we come to chapter 17, and Elijah emerges on the scene, and he's coming from, from Jordan. He's not even coming from Israel. He's coming from what we call it would be today, another nation. And here's what he said to Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, who is Elijah? He's a prophet of God. He is the mouthpiece of God. He didn't just make this up. What he was, he was going to Ahab. Can you imagine an unknown prophet from a long way off approaching the king of Israel and saying to that king, in essence, now he didn't say these words, but this is what was behind these words, because of all the wickedness and sinfulness that you have brought into the nation of Israel, because you have introduced and, and magnified this whole idea of Baal worship, when the people should be worshiping the true God of heaven. God is so upset with this, Ahab, that there's going to be a drought on this land. There'll be no more rain. See, you can see they're worshiping Baal, who they thought Baal would send the rain. And God is saying now through Elijah, you go tell Ahab, Baal doesn't send rain, I send rain. And I'm saying now there's a drought on the land. It's part of the judgment. It was part of the the uh, penalty that they had to pay for the evil that was going on. And so he lived during a very, very wicked time. But the second thing I would say about Elijah is this. He lived close to God. Yes, the, the culture was corrupt and it was wicked and they're worshiping these false gods. But Elijah himself was a very godly man and he lived a very godly life. He did not allow the sins of the people to become a part of his life. Instead of being influenced by the culture, what did Elijah do? He influenced the culture. He spoke truth to power. I mean, literally, to the king, Ahab, he said what he said. So he lived close to God. And it says to me that no matter what the culture is, and folks, we, I think even in churches today, and, and some things need, sin needs to be addressed. I never would back off of that. But I'm afraid sometimes, even in Christian circles, even in Christian gatherings, we spend all of our time bemoaning all the sins of the world. And there's a place for that. We can't be oblivious to that. We need to know that. But listen, we are called to be light in the darkness of the world. And we're not effective light simply by cursing the darkness or by pointing out the darkness. When I get home tonight, it'll be dark on my street. It'll be dark in my house. When I walk in my house, I'm not going to say, bad darkness. I'm not going to rebuke the darkness. I'm not going to say, darkness, be gone. I'm not going to say, well, when I left here, it wasn't dark. Now look what's happened. Now, I can't even, now I'm tripping all over everything. I'm not going to do that. When I walk in my house, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to flip the switch, and the light's going to be on. 
And that's what we are. We are light. Yes, there's a place for calling out sin, for addressing sin, for speaking, for calling sin, sin. Yes, definitely we should do that. But there's also a place for us as the children of light, the light of God ourselves with Christ in us, for us to be that light, for us to brighten up a room when we leave it, for us to purify an office when we walk into it. For us to purify our culture just because we're there. Not by condemning the darkness, not just by doing that, but by shining the light. And that's what Elijah did. He addressed the darkness, sure. But he lived so close to God that he brought light into the place where he was living. And so we can live close to God. We should never blame our sins on the culture that we're living in. We should never just say, well, you know, everybody's doing it or everybody's watching it or everybody's doing this. No, we have to take responsibility for our lives. And God calls us to live clean, pure, godly lives even in the midst of a sinful world. The next thing I would say about Elijah is this. He lived a consequential life. In other words, his life mattered to God. He lived a very consequential life. And, and in my notes, not in yours, but in my notes, I've just jotted out several things. And I'm going to look up some verses in a moment. You might want to look some of these up or you might not want to. You might want to just listen because I'm going to go fast turn, turning these back and forth. But the first thing we know about Elijah is this. He performed many miracles. Now, if you study how many miracles did Elijah perform, if you read books and articles, you're going to get different numbers. It's interesting. The Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says that Elijah performed eight miracles in his ministry. Eight. Now, let's fast forward to how Elijah came to the end of his time on earth. And remember, Elisha was his understudy. Elisha was his, Elisha was his assistant. And before Elijah went to heaven in a whirlwind, Elisha said to Elijah, before you leave me, here's my request. I would like a double portion of your spirit. I would like twice as much power as you have. And Elijah said back to Elisha, you've asked a very hard thing. What Elijah was thinking, I, don't, I can't give you that. The power comes from God. But Elijah, undoubtedly speaking under the inspiration of God, said to Elisha, I'll tell you, what ha I'll tell you how this will be, Elisha. When I depart from you, if you see me taken away, you will receive a double portion of my power in your life and of my spirit. And that's exactly what happened. Elijah went up in a whirlwind. Elisha watched it. The mantle from Elisha came down on, Eli on Elisha, and he received a double portion of his power. So much so that the Midrash, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, said Elisha performed 16 miracles in his ministry. Elijah 8, Elisha 16. And so it's an interesting thing, but he lived a very, very consequential life. He performed many, and we'll see this in our study. I'm just putting it out there tonight. This is an introduction, but we'll see these miracles. The next thing I would say, and I've just referenced it, was Elijah, Elijah never died. He's one of two people in the Bible who never died. The other one, his name starts with an E. We read about him in Genesis chapter 5. I bet you know his name. On the count of three, let's see if we can say it. One, two, three. Enoch. Enoch died. 
and I never died. He went to heaven. He was walking with God. God took him. Never died. Elijah, walking with God. God took him. Let me give you a scripture verse. In 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, then it happened as they continued on and talked. That is, Elijah and Elisha. They're just walking and talking together. That suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He never died. So Elijah's story is, begins in 1 Kings 17. It ends in 2 Kings 2. Now, in my Bible, that's not very many pages. In fact, that's, that's less than 10. It's about 10 pages in my Bible. And yet, in 10 pages, this man's life was so phenomenal that he is on the Mount Rushmore of Bible characters and he is, uh, lived amazing, an amazing life and left an amazing legacy. It's interesting. Even though Elisha had twice the power and did twice the miracles, after Elisha died, not much was ever said about him. I don't know the significance of that, but it is interesting. Elijah, on the other hand, his story continues to be told again and again and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And, and that's what, what I'm trying to stress tonight. This man, both of them, but tonight we're thinking about Elijah. He was known for his spiritual power. This man had power. He may not have had a long life, but he had a meaningful life. And he had the power of God in his life. Now, don't try to look at all these verses because I think it would frustrate you and I'm going to go faster than you would want to go in the turning of pages. But you might want to just write these references down. I think it will be better this way. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, these are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi the prophet is writing and here's what he says. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, this is beginning in verse 4, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. With the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, Malachi is writing this. God is speaking this. And he said, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The, old, the last word in the Old Testament is curse. And after that, the word curse, and then there's a period and a close quote. God did not say a word for 400 years. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the intertestamental period, 400 years. And the Old Testament ends with the word curse. We come to the New Testament. We read about the coming of Jesus. And we read about the blessing that we have in him. We go from a curse to a blessing. But here's what God said to Malachi. Before, before the Messiah comes, I'm going to send Elijah. People thought, Elijah? Elijah's already gone to heaven. You're going to send him back from heaven? What is that? So let me read some more. Write this down. In Luke chapter 1, just jot this down. And verses 13 through 17, we looked at this passage during Christmas when the angel Gabriel went to Zechariah and said, Zechariah, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby boy in your old age. And his name will be John, John the Baptist. And listen to these words. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, John the Baptist. And you will have 
joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so when John the Baptist, before he was born, after his conception, he had the power of God on his life, and certainly as his life developed. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now listen to this, verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was so powerful that Gabriel is saying here, John the Baptist will have the power of Elijah. The same power that Elijah had, that is what John will have. Now, let me, get, let me give you another scripture. In Matthew chapter 11, and beginning in verse 11, just jot this down. Don't try to look it up. And verses 11 through 14, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And here's what Jesus said about, about John the Baptist. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women... There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. When God said to Malachi, before the Messiah comes, Elijah's coming. He was talking, but he's just giving John the Baptist a different name. He's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In fact, John the Baptist had such power on his life. I mean, as I just think about the power of God, first of all, it must be in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, but then it must be on us. Don't you know people who have you may never have thought about it being power, but don't you know people who just have something in their life that's different than what most people have? It's just, it's just something. It's the, X fa it's the it factor. Well, friend, if they're saved and spirit-filled, it's, it's not the it factor. It's the him factor. It's the spirit of God in that person and on that person. And there is a power about that. John the Baptist had this. In fact, let me give you this to write down. In John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Now, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? I mean, this man had such power that the religious leaders wanted to know who he was. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed to them, I am not the Christ. They thought he was the Messiah. He said, no, I'm not. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? They thought Elijah has come back to the earth. He went up mysteriously. He must have come back. Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said, I am not. You see, John the Baptist was not Elijah. He was not the second coming of Elijah. John the Baptist, though, had the spirit and the power of Elijah on his life. Now, I'll tell you something else about, uh, about Elijah. Jot this down. In Matthew chapter 17, in the first several verses of this chapter, we find Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, listen to verse 3 of Matthew 17. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus. On this mountain, Jesus goes up top of it with 
the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and as they go and ascend that mountain, supernaturally, Moses and Elijah come down from heaven to join them on that mountain to talk, not to the disciples, but to talk to Jesus, to encourage Jesus about his crucifixion and about his departure from the earth and to just encourage him in any way that they can. And in verse 4 it says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In one of the gospel accounts of this, it says something like this. It says, Then Peter, not knowing what to say, spoke. And I can identify with that because sometimes I start talking and then I think about what I should be saying. Well, Peter didn't know what to say, but he just so overcome with Moses and Elijah. So I'm saying he's known for his spiritual power. He's coming now out of heaven to the mountain to be with Jesus, with Moses there on, on that mountain. And then one other passage, let me just give you the jot down. In Revelation chapter number 11, we're reading now about the tribulation period out in the future after the rapture of the church and about halfway through the tribulation period. There are going to be these two witnesses that emerge in Jerusalem and begin to be God's mouthpieces there in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 6. And God said, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,265 days clothed in sackcloth, three and a half years. They're going to, they're going to prophesy for that long. And in verse 6, these have power, now watch this, to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Now, it doesn't say that one of the witnesses is Elijah, but many scholars think that it is because he's doing exactly what Elijah did. He's, he's, he's making it where there's no rain. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, just like Moses did in, in, down in Egypt, and to strike the earth with all plagues, just like Moses did, as often as they desire. So it's possible that during the tribulation period, just like Moses and Elijah came from heaven to the Mount of Transfiguration, they're coming from heaven to the earth, and they're going to be God's spokespersons. But the point I'm trying to make tonight is this man, Elijah, does belong on Mount Rushmore. He is a man of supernatural power in his life. You say, John, at the beginning of this, you're talking about we can have more faith and more power and more peace and, and more victory, and we can be more fruitful and more useful and all these things. And I was with you then, but now you've got this Elijah coming down out of heaven, up in a whirlwind, back during the tribulation. Elijah now has just gone so far beyond me that there's absolutely no way that I, I could relate to him at the beginning. He's a nobody coming from nowhere, speaking to a wicked king in a, in a sinful age. I was with you then. But now all this that Elijah's doing, there's no way in the world that Elijah and I have anything in common. Let me give you another verse to write down. James chapter 5 and verse 17. James said, Elijah, now listen to this, was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah, I was going to say he put his pants on just like we do, but he didn't wear it, but he wore a robe. He put his robe on just like if we wore robes that we would put our robe on. But he was a man, James said, with a nature just like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, look back at the end of verse number 16. Notice the last sentence in verse 16. The effective, 
fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah had the same proclivities that we have. He had the same temptation. He had the same sin nature that we have. He had the same struggles that we have. He had the same battle with the flesh that we have. It, it says it. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Listen, it wasn't so much Elijah, it was the God of Elijah and the God in Elijah and the God who ministered through Elijah that gave Elijah the power that he had. And that God is our God. And that's why when it says here, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, what is God saying? God is saying that just like I empowered Elijah in Old Testament times, he was born 900 in the year, approximately 900 B.C. Man, nearly 3,000 years ago. Supernatural power. But God said, you can have that same power in your life. Now, as we think about that, first of all, do you believe that's true if you do say amen? I mean, I believe that. I believe that we can have this power. God may not do the same things through us that he did through Elijah, or he may. He very well may. I mean, hey, folks, if we're, if we're living when the rapture takes place, we're not going to die either. Enoch and Elijah are Old Testament pictures of the rapture, how it's possible to go to heaven without dying. And maybe we'll be in that category. But tonight, I want to mention two of Elijah's greatest qualities because I believe, and we're back in 1 Kings now in chapter 17, if you were looking those other verses up. But in 1 Kings 17, I want to just draw your attention tonight to two of his greatest qualities because it was not by accident that Elijah had this power. There was something about this man, the way he was wired, the way he thought, the way he believed, the way he lived. There was something about him that enabled the Spirit of God to just be at loose in his life. And the first thing I notice about Elijah is this. He was confident in God's Word. Again, look at that first verse of the 17th chapter. Elijah went to Ahab and said to the king, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, I don't think anybody believes that Elijah just made that up. That was not Elijah's idea. Elijah was a prophet of God. Elijah told Ahab what God had told him to say. And so God had given Elijah a word, and he believed it. He believed that if he would go to the king, and if he, speaking on behalf of God, would say to that king, there will not be rain unless and until I say it should rain that there won't be rain. He knew that he was speaking in the, in the authority of God and in the power of God, and he had confidence in the Word of God. You know, sometimes I think, how much simpler would life be if we just believed that God meant what he said? That just, you know, people have counted how many promises there are in the Bible. Some say 7,000. I think I read a number one time, 7,587 promises in the Bible. I don't know if that, or 7487, I don't know if that's the exact number, but lots of promises in the Bible. And you know what? When we come to the end of the journey and look back on our lives, we're going to say this, God kept every promise he ever made. That's how Joshua died. He said, not a single thing that God promised me has failed. Everything came to pass. Well, we need to just be confident in God's word. And then secondly, Elijah was obedient to God's plan. You see, God had a plan for Elijah's life, just like he has for us. And when God told him what to do, he just believed that this plan was the best plan. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, get away from here. Leave where you are 
and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan River. And it shall be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And so God spoke to Elijah. He said, Elijah, I want you to go from where you are to another place. At the end of verse 4, he said, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I have a sermon, and I suppose every preacher who's living has a sermon, entitled A Place Called There, because God told Elijah to go there. And he said, if you go there, I'm going to meet your needs there. I was looking at my outline of that sermon today. I'm not going to preach the sermon tonight, but I, I was looking at, at my outline of that, and I had, I had said previously that there is a specific place. You know, it's interesting when you talk to some people about the will of God. I heard a preacher years ago, and I, 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 I like this preacher. I, I think I don't listen to him much, but I was listening to him one night, and I just thought, I don't believe what you just said. He said to his congregation, he was preaching a sermon on God's will. And he said, you know, a lot of times in churches you hear preachers talk about God has a specific will for where you're to work and where you're to live and who you're to marry and what house you're supposed to buy. And, and God has a plan. And God has. He said, I don't believe that. He said, I don't believe God's will works that way. Because if you messed up one thing, then it would just throw the whole thing off for everybody. And he said, here's what I believe about the will of God. He said, I believe the will of God is like a pasture. And in that pasture, you have great freedom. And as long as you don't go over the one of, one of if, as long as you don't get out of the pasture and go over one of the fences by violating a command of God, then it doesn't really matter where you live, which church you pastor, who you marry, where you work, what you do with your money. Nothing matters as long as you don't break a commandment of God. He just blew up that God has an individual will for your life. And I'm sitting there listening to that sermon. And I'm thinking, sir, I respect you, but I don't, I, I don't believe that. I don't see how anybody could believe that if they believe the Bible. All through the Bible, God is telling specific people to go to specific places. To Abraham, Abraham, you go to this particular mountain and you offer Isaac on that mountain. He didn't just say pick any mountain. When God brought Boaz and Ruth together, he led Ruth to Boaz's field, not just any field. All through the, and here, God says to Elijah, he didn't just say, hey, Elijah, you're living in a wicked day, and Ahab's a wicked king, and what you need to do is hide. Just find somewhere that's safe and hide anywhere. It doesn't matter where. Just hide somewhere that you think safe. No, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave here and go there. And he told him where there was. It is by the brook Cherith or Cherith. And there I'm going to send the ravens. To, I'm going to send the ravens with bread and meat every morning and every night there to that specific place. Now, had Elijah stayed here where he was and not gone there where God told him to be, could Elijah have blamed God that he didn't have anything to eat or anything to drink? No. 
he would have been out of the will of God. When God said go there, God said there is a very specific place and you need to go there. All through scripture, we're fine. After the, before the crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, after the resurrection, I'll meet you in Galilee. There's a mountain there. You'll, you know the mountain. I'll meet you there at that mountain. He didn't just say, hey, after the resurrection, I'm going to catch up with you all somewhere. Just go anywhere. No. He has a specific plan. There is a specific place. God has a, a plan for your life, a place for you to work, a place for you to live. There's a specific place. Sometimes there is an unfamiliar place. It was to Elijah. I doubt he had ever been there. He was from another part of the region. Sometimes God leads us to an unfamiliar place. Sometimes there's a lonely place. But there is always a place of great blessings. God said, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. If you'll be there, your needs will be met. You will not go hungry. But if you're not there, the ravens are going there. I've sent the ravens there. So for you to hook up with the ravens, you better go there. That's where the brook is. That's where the water is. That's where the blessing is. You must go there, there, a specific place, sometimes an unfamiliar place, but always a place of great blessings. Now, there are two stories I want to tell before we end tonight, and I can tell both of these quickly. I've gone over the last two weeks. I owe you guys seven minutes. Now, I promise you that, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be paying those back in installments, right, not all in one time. If I let you out of here at 723, we're going to both be disappointed. I, listen, I feel too good to let you out at 723. But I'm going to try to get you out by 729, so I'll have made part of, paid part of my debt off, okay? We'll do that for six weeks in a row. I, I'll make the first story very quick because I've already told it. It's been a long time, but it's, I've still told it. When I was in college at Baylor University, I had a, an internship at Calvary Baptist Church there in Waco with a pastor named Jim Johnson. He now pastors a church in Dallas. Good man, godly man, and I was blessed in the relationship. His wife, Robin, was a, an anchor woman for, for, for Channel 10 News in Waco. She had a, those jobs are not easy to get. And she was good. And she was on Channel 10 News every night. Well, a church in Atlanta, Georgia, Dunwoody Baptist Church, contacted Dr. Johnson and his wife, Robin, about leaving Waco and moving to Atlanta to pastor that church. That's always traumatic for a pastor or for anybody when you think about moving, starting over. They prayed about it. Jim said, Robin, my ultimate loyalty is to God, and I know yours is too. I feel like God is leading us. We've got to be together on this decision, but I must be honest with you. The thought of you leaving your dream job, being an anchor woman on Channel 10 News, is, 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 is hard for me. I mean, I feel, even though I didn't instigate it, I think this is of God. As your husband, I feel bad about this. She said, well, I, I appreciate you saying that, and I, I have the same struggle in me. I, you know, the odds of me, Atlanta is so much bigger than Waco. The odds of me ever getting a job at WSB or one of the Atlanta stations. But Jim, when we went into the ministry, we went in as a team. Wherever he leads, I'll go. You feel God leading us. I feel God leading us. I probably have more concerns than you because of my job, but I think we got to go. He resigned his church. She resigned Channel 10 News. They moved to Atlanta. 
One night I was in my, I had by that time graduated Baylor. I had moved to Fort Worth, going to seminary at Southwestern. I got in my apartment one night to have a delicious TV dinner that I used to have, either meatloaf or enchiladas, banquet TV dinners. Very healthy, very affordable too. I had my, whichever one of those two I was eating that night, I brought two of those a week and the other times I went out. But that was my two. I sat down in my chair to eat that, turned the TV on, flipping through. Let's see what the news is tonight. I somehow came on CNN. Robin Johnson, anchorwoman, CNN News. God said to Jim and Robin in Waco, you're here, but I want you to go there. And if you will leave this place to go to that place, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. There's food there. There's water there. There are blessings there. You don't know what they are yet. But if you'll take a step of faith, I'm going to bless your socks off. From Channel 10 to CNN. That's not bad. See, there is always a place of special blessings. I think sometimes it's easy to hear a story like that and you think, well, that's good for the preachers. God tells you guys to go from one place to another place. God's going to take care of you. And you know what? It is good for the preachers. But let me tell you something. There is not just a place for the preachers. There is a place for all of God's people. God has a there for me, but God has a there for you. A specific will in your life. A specific will. A specific place. See, we think about there. We think about career moves, something big and dramatic like what I just told you. There's not a part of your life that God doesn't care about. He has the hairs of your head numbered. When you stand up, he notices it. When you sit down, he pays attention. God cares about it. There's no part of your life he doesn't care about. He even cares about where you live. The house I'm living in now, I bought it about 20 and a half years ago. Be 21 years this summer. I've been very happy in my house, and I still am. They were asking 139.5, and I felt like if I offered them 135, I'd feel good about it. I offered them 135. They said, you got a deal. The reason they sold me that house, I know you're not supposed to do this, but I had, my agent had shown me the house, my friend, and I had a question about the roof, and I know you're not supposed to, you're supposed to just ask your agent, and they ask their agent, but one night I ran, rang the doorbell of this family's house. I introduced myself. I said, I like your house. I noticed it's for sale. I really, but I had a question about the roof. He said, you know, you're not supposed to ask me. You're supposed to ask the agent and then ask my agent. He didn't say that, but he was thinking that. And, I, and he answered my question. And we had a nice conversation. He went back in. I found this out later. He said to his wife, she said, who is that? She said, it's the guy wanting to buy our house, but he's asking questions about the roof. She said, doesn't he know he's supposed to ask the agent and they're supposed to ask our agent? Time went by and I found it after the fact. When they decided to sell me the house for 135 they said, we like the offer, but we also like the guy who had enough gusto to ask us about our roof. Sell a house to that guy right there. So anyway, you shouldn't do that. I think it's not the way, but it worked for me. So I've been happy as I could be in that house for over 20 years. They had mentioned earlier that the pots are my neighbor's. I was visiting in their home the other day, and Cassie had been diagnosed with what they thought was pancreatic cancer several months ago. And they said, pancreatic, you know, and then, then they, more tests. No, we don't think it's pancreatic cancer. 
We think it's something else. It's cancer. But we think we can cut it out. Major surgery. You'll be cancer-free with a slow recovery. But we think we can get it. She went to the hospital. They did the surgery. They got in. Not long into the surgery, the cancer had spread. They sewed her up. She went to the hospital thinking she was coming home to be healed, cancer-free. She came home from the hospital in an ambulance on hospice care, given just a few days or weeks to live. I've talked to Cassie several times since then. She called me. When she got home from the hospital, she said, John, hospice is coming in. They got all this paperwork. Everybody's being so nice. She said, they're asking if I need a chaplain. She said, John, at this, at this stage in the game, it's kind of late for me to make a new friend. I have a favor of you. Will you be my chaplain? <laughs> I said, Cassie, I'll be... I'll be glad to be your chaplain. And I've talked to her several times since then. I was in their home the other day, and we were talking. She felt good on this day. She said, John, we've been a neighbor. We've been living here with you for about 20 years. She said, you bought your house first, then us. She said, do we ever tell you how we got this house? I said, no, you never did. I wanted to say, did you ask about their roof? And that's... She said, we've been looking at houses all over Pasadena. We felt like we needed to move from where we were. We wanted something different. She said, we came down Oakmont Circle one day, and the agent said, it's that house. I'm in the cul-de-sac right in the middle, and they're to the right going down my street. Roy and Sue Meese are to my left. And the agent said, it's that house right to the right. Said, oh, that's a pretty house. That looks like just what we need. And the agent said, well, it is a fine house, and I'll show it to you. It has a pool in the back. I don't have a pool. They have a pool. And said, uh, it's a beautiful house. It's what you've described. I think you'll be happy there. But there's one thing you need to know if you buy that house. She said, well, they said, well, what is it? And the agent didn't go to this church. She said, they, they said, you need to know if you buy that house, you're going to be living next door to a preacher. <laughs> and I don't know how you feel about having a preacher for a neighbor. I don't know what they thought we were going to take up an evening offering or what we were going to do. <laughs> And Cassie said, well, who is the preacher? And she told him it was me. And Cassie said, well, he's one of our preachers. We like John. We want to be his neighbor. And they bought the house. She said, John, I want to tell you, I'm so glad that 20 years ago, God led us here so we could spend these two decades next door to you. You see, God led me to a specific, God didn't just say, hey, John, as long as you can buy a house and not get yourself in a financial bind, just stay in the pasture out there. I don't really care where you live. What kind of God would that be? God said, no, I care where you live, and I care who your neighbors are. And knock 4500 off that price and offer them 135 and see what they say. God led me to 4618 Oakmont Circle, and God led them to whatever that number is right next door, and we've had a wonderful run for 20 years together. I'm saying to you tonight, whatever your decision, big or small, God has a, a there for you. Elijah 
had the power of God on his life. Why? Because he believed God's word and he was obedient to God's plan. Amen? Father, help us to be like Elijah. Help us, Lord, to live like he lived. And then, God, whether it's through physical death or through the rapture, help us just to suddenly, like Cassie was today, be taken up with a band of angels into the very presence of God. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, would you ask God, To help you be like Elijah. To go to that brook. To go there. For some of you that is a place of salvation. For others that is a place of baptism. For others that is a place of apologizing. Making, trying to make something right. It's there. It's God's, it's where God's told you to go. There's a blessing there. For some it may be the ministry. We saw Josh and Shanna Beams have now stepped out by faith into the ministry. It's a beautiful thing. God, show us where our there is. And help us, Lord, to willingly, joyfully walk away from Channel 10, knowing that if we'll go there, you'll have us at a bigger and a better station, at least better for us, whether it's bigger or not, is not the issue but better for us. Help us to live our lives in the center of your will. If you've never been saved, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, tonight my there is at the foot of the cross. I come there as a sinner asking for forgiveness and for salvation. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. 